Welcome to Greater Than Code, episode 110. I'm John Sowers, and I'm here with my friend Sam Livingston Gray. Good morning, and I am super thrilled to be here with my friend, and as of tomorrow, my co-worker, Jamie Hampton. I'm excited. It's such an exciting week. And I'm really pleased to be uh, back on the show and with everyone, including my friend, Coraline Ada Emke. Hey, everybody. And we have a very special guest today, Courtney Eckhart. Courtney has been working in system administration, tech support, internet anti-abuse, and incident response. She's one of the founding members of the feminist makerspace Seattle Attic and served on its board. And she's participated in the apparel manufacturing bootcamp at Albuquerque Fashion Incubator multiple times. Courtney is currently an incident response specialist at Heroku, and she gives conference talks about incident response, incident retrospectives, and having a healthy operations culture. Welcome, Courtney. Thank you so much. It's really exciting to be here with everyone. We're going to ask you our standard question, and that is, what is your superpower and how did you develop it? My superpower is explaining things. I can explain most things that I understand, at least at a high level, to most people, which leads to a secondary. I don't get it. (laughs) 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 Um, That leads to a secondary superpower of being able to answer rhetorical questions with helpful answers. (laughs) (laughs) What is a rhetorical question? Gosh, I don't know. How did I get it? I got it, and this is kind of a little bit dark. I got it because I had a really bad family situation growing up. It led to me being an extremely weird child, and there were a lot of reasons for me to develop an ability to explain things so as to make myself seem less weird in a bunch of different contexts. Uh, And then I went into tech support and had to do it for a living, which really just polished the skill that I already had. Such a valuable skill. I think we still have this remnant of, maybe it's a revenant echo of technical people as very insular, as bad communicators, That's not the case. You can't be successful without being able to explain things, without being able to answer people's questions, without being able to translate technical jargon into everyday language. It used to be rare, but we're finding that the most successful people have those skills and how vital they really are. Yeah, definitely. It frustrates me endlessly that so many people I have worked with over the years take pride in not being able to explain things. like. What I do is so difficult, I couldn't possibly explain it to you. And it leads to this feeling of superiority and a breakdown in communication. And I don't think it's good for anybody. That's interesting because when you first said like taking pride in not being able to explain, like my gut reaction was like, why? Like who would do that? And then you immediately explained and I was like, oh yeah, I totally know people like that. If anything, I worry that like if I explain technical things to people, like it's not like I'm worried that they won't get it. I'm worried that like they'll find it really boring. Like my, my fiance like asked me like, what did you do at work today? And I'm like, do you really want to know what I did at work today? And he's like, yes. And then I tell him a story that like feels really boring to me. And he's like, that's so cool. And I'm like, oh, is it cool? <laughs> and I, I love being able to make people feel less intimidated or weird about what it is that I do. Right. Like I enjoy being able to explain what I do at a high level so that you know, my physical therapist, who's a very specialized person in a different field, understands what it is that I do and no longer feels quite as awkward about the difference between our professions. I've Sorry. tried to explain to my therapist what I do, although most of the time, if I am talking about my work, it comes down to like harassment issues. And she told me once, it sounds like you have a, an abusive relationship with the entire Internet. That's fair. On point. Yeah. Do you think this is a phenomenon that's unique to the tech industry? Or do you think that like other people that are like highly like quote technical in like other fields, like a surgeon would like also experience like, I don't know how to tell you about this. Or do you think that they, I don't know. I'm like, I'm now I'm trying to put myself into the head of someone who like knows a lot about something that I don't know about. What do you think? I feel like a lot of scientists can sort of wind up not not wanting to talk to people who aren't scientists about what they do. I think there's a culture in science, too, of, like, you know, there's that whole publish or perish thing where 
they have to be super technical and they have to be super insular or there's pressure to be super insular in the papers that they write, right? And uh, I think the outlet for a lot of technologists is conference talks where you have to be able to express an idea to an audience of unknown skill level. So I think that that might be even more important in our field. And this reminds me, actually, so I mentioned in our pre-discussion, Suzette Hayden-Elgin, who's a linguist, and she spent most of her professional life sort of walled off from the rest of the people in her very small specialty because her focus was on pedagogy and not pedagogy in a sort of institutional sense, but in a writing books for regular people so that they understand the tools that they use as human beings. And that meant that most of the other linguists didn't really want to pal around with her because she made what they did seem accessible instead of special. Yeah, I, I find that tendency to want to hoard information so that you seem more intelligent is definitely prevalent. Although, if I, and I don't know how I ended up with this tendency of, of wanting to, to tear that down, but I, I always feel, like I think much like you, that if, if someone feels like they could never understand what I do, I want to explain to them like what I'm doing because they'll immediately go, oh, okay, yeah, I get that. And, and I want them to not just like hand wave away all the internet stuff, all the coding stuff. Um, and just say, oh, that's something for you to deal with. I, I, I think it's cool when they un like understand what's going on there. So, Courtney, how does that relate to incident response, which is like your primary your primary role? A very critical part of incident response that I don't think that we think about enough in this industry is how we talk to people who are affected by our incidents. What we say to them, how we say it, when we say it, and whether it's PR customer service or some other thing i feel like we can name large companies who post really unhelpful things on their status site and never really let people know what happened and leave a lot of customers feeling really insecure about what went wrong and is it going to happen again and how do i know whether i was affected and like one of the things that i strive for in my position at heroku is to make sure that we are not necessarily getting too far down into the technical details, because I think that also can do a disservice, but that we're transparent and honest and that people can feel that we are telling the truth, at least at a high level. We're not, you know, snowing them. Yeah, so one tension that I uh, often see or think I see playing into those conversations is this idea that, you know, a large corporation, let's say a credit card company gets breached and, you know, millions of people's personal details are, are leaked and they have to tell people that it happened because, you know, they are required to tell people that it happened. But the instinct, especially in that kind of organization is to cover your ass as much as possible and to avoid liability. And so how does that tension play out in the conversations that you've been a part of? So, Security incident response is actually a slightly separate field from mine. It's adjacent, but it partakes of a lot more understanding of bad actors and the dangers of saying too much or saying something too soon, uh, which is not my core skill set. Mine is more around operations and being honest about what we broke or what fell apart that maybe was not something that we personally broke and how that affected people. I have talked sometimes to my friend Lee Honeywell about this, and she and I both have a very similar perspective about how these communications should happen, but the content um, is something that I'm not very familiar with. I'm much more familiar with the cover your ass kind of thing about uh, an SLA, right? We don't want to have people making complaints that we breached our SLA and maybe us having to give them money. I wonder if... Uh... If this is a double-edged sword, because I'm picturing like a scenario where you know, you're describing a scenario where there's no accountability and you're not talking about what went wrong and people aren't trusting you, which I understand. But I wonder if there's like an opposite of that where people are like mad about hearing the real reason, like, oh, well, why didn't you just not let that happen or whatever? Like, I remember there was some big problems at GitLab a couple years ago and they totally, they were very honest about what happened and like it traced back to like a person and they, they were like, we're not going to fire this person because they, you know, it was a mistake and they learned their lesson and people were like really mad that they weren't going to fire that person. I thought it was like really irresponsible. 
but I wonder, I wonder what you have to say about like the, the pros and cons, I guess, of like both sides of this. Usually when I'm writing this kind of communication, I try not to make it about a single person because in a complex distributed system, it's never about a single, single person, right? It's always about what that person knew or didn't know, what tools they had or didn't have, the fact that they had to type a really long command line and not get a single character wrong. And all of those are ways that the company and the system around that person failed them and could have been any one of us in that situation. So it's not that I try to pretend that there wasn't a single person who pushed a button somewhere, but I try to make sure that the conversation doesn't focus on that, that the conversation in public and in private is about all of those things around the edges of where that person was that affected what they did and knew in that moment. So I know we've had several other guests on the show that have talked about um, incident response and, and human factors and things like that, including Stephen Schrock and John Allspaugh. And one of the things that they emphasized that was that was sort of a new concept to me, but made perfect sense the mo as soon as it was explained, was that like you can trace things back to a human often when you're doing like a root cause analysis, but often that's not really the root cause because there's all the context around that human about what they were doing and what led them to think that what they were doing was the correct thing. And so like that message. I think is a core thing that needs to get out to the public more because if you if the public understood that just because you've identified one person typing the wrong command doesn't mean that you know exactly what happened and why it happened that you could you know it would never happen again if you just people wouldn't do that again like if, if we could get that message out a bit more I think it would help people sometimes ask me um, I don't know if any of you remember the giant ELB outage of I think 2012 around Christmas time and Amazon unusually posted a long explanation of what had happened. And in that particular case, a new hire was accidentally given production credentials to do a bunch of new hire practice with, including dropping a state table, which this poor new hire dropped on the production ELB state database in US East. And a lot of people ask me, because I worked at Amazon at the time, well, didn't they fire that person? They didn't know what they were doing. Or a slightly more sophisticated question, didn't they fire the person's mentor who gave them the wrong credentials? And the answer is no, they didn't, because none of that was the fault of either of those individual humans. And so I'm actually often pleased to be able to answer that question and say, no, those people were not fired because it wasn't their bad. I saw a quote once, and I wish I knew... I'm going to see if I can find it so we can put it in the show notes because I'm not sure who said this. But um, it was like some company had just had some outage and it cost like $20 million or something. And they were like, aren't you going to fire that person? And he was like, no, I just spent $20 million training them to never do that again. Why would I fire <laughs> them now? Wow. <laughs> I kind of love that. But I also object to the idea that you can train someone to not make mistakes. <laughs> You can train them not to make a specific mistake again, probably. You can train that person probably. to have anxiety if they're not very careful. <laughs> yes. <laughs> if that's what we should be shooting for. <laughs> right? We mentioned anxiety, and anxiety is definitely a factor in my development um, experience, my daily experience. And I feel like there's a slack for people who are um, for people who are in tech and have disabilities. And I got invited to Slack and I was like, well, I don't have any disabilities. And they're like, you struggle with mental health issues. And I'm like, yeah, but I don't think about it that way. But it, it really is, right? And anxiety is one of those invisible disabilities. But there are other like visible disabilities and people who are struggling. How does that factor in? Whenever I talk about disabilities in the workplace and in professional spaces, I mentioned that I've never worked with someone with an obvious physical disability in a public company. I've only worked with someone with obvious like mobility aids or other issues that are visible from a conversational distance or like a 10 foot distance in public sector jobs. And, you know, I have a coworker right now who's low vision um, I've worked with some folks um, with hearing issues and, of course, the mental health issues that Coraline mentioned and something that I also struggle with. But there's a difference 
to being, for me, uh, the one person with an obvious physical need. And it's funny how sometimes it's really clear. People, strangers will walk up to me on the street and see my knee brace and be like, what did you do to yourself? By the way, that's a terrible question for myself. Um, I did not do it to myself on purpose. But sometimes people don't notice. And, you know, I'll be sort of hanging around with my coworkers. It's time to go somewhere. And the, a lot of them go bounding down the stairs and I go find the elevator. I had this experience at AWS reInvent, actually, this past week. Um, one of the parts of my job currently is that I am the relationship owner for Heroku and AWS. And AWS reInvent, in case you aren't aware of it, is a gigantic conference that's held in like six hotels up and down the Las Vegas Strip. The distances involved are ridiculous and like unbelievable. Like I measured on a map and the distance between one of the residential towers in the Venetian to the conference space in the Venetian is half a mile indoors. So when I'm there, I get a mobility scooter because I can't cover those distances in a way that's good for my body, uh, especially not with the time constraints of a conference. And up until this year, I was the only person that I saw with a mobility aid and a lanyard. And this year, I also needed to get scanned by security personnel every time I came in or out of the space because they had metal detectors at the entrances. There's no way to go in or out with a mobility aid of any kind because they're basically all metal and not trigger the metal detectors. So yeah, this is something that's been super on my mind lately. That was like just last week as we're recording this for me. And I've been thinking about what it means to have that be something that I couldn't opt out of. Other attendees could not bring their laptop into the conference space and walk through the metal detectors without an issue. There was no way for me to literally do my job without getting searched each time. That can be really awesome, right? Very much so. Especially in previous years, being the only one on a scooter with a lanyard. For anyone who has not been to Vegas, the other people who rent mobility scooters, the casinos tend to be retirees who are there on vacation. It's a very marked state to be not the normal kind of able-bodied person, as it were, and also not the normal kind of person with this issue. That's really interesting. I had not thought about it from that perspective of like feeling other, even from like other people that are going through something similar to you. I never knew whether to nod at the other people on scooters or not. We were not part of a community, actually, but we sort of were. But we were part of a marked state that was not even the same marked state. Yeah, that reminds me of something that I've seen people talking about on Twitter from time to time, which is people who use mobility devices and especially wheelchairs face this additional stigma of like, if they use a wheelchair because they have balance problems, but they can stand up, then when they are seen standing up out of the wheelchair in public, they are accused of faking it and, you know, not having a real disability in heavy air quotes. Like, did you experience anything of that or does the scooter like mitigate some of that? In some ways, the scooter mitigates some of that. Like there is an expectation to a mobility scooter that you're not using it for every step, right? It's for sort of distances and maybe outside the home in most cases, partly because a lot of mobility scooters are larger than an electric wheelchair and footprint. They weigh more and they're like much more awkward in a bunch of small spaces and stuff. Not having had a chair of my own, I recognize that there are chairs that are larger than the ones I'm thinking of, but a lot of them are smaller. And because of the layout of the conference space, I wind up parking the scooter in a hallway and then walking into the conference room that I'm there for. And it's this peculiar thing where I switch what kind of person I am because I've walked through the door and the people in the room don't know that I'm also the person who was on that scooter. Yeah, I actually had a a similar but much uh, milder experience at RubyConf a couple of weeks ago where like I had been walking around Disneyland and got a blister and my foot was really hurting. So I actually went out and bought a cane the day before the conference. And so for the first two days of the conference, I was, you know, hobbling around with a cane. And then by the third day, it felt fine. And it felt really different to navigate that same space just with that one tiny little change. Did the cane make noise when you walked? Only at first. And then I remembered that you can like tighten the little screw down so that it doesn't go clink, clink, clink every time. I've been on crutches uh, for long stretches uh, several times at this point, and I have never had people get out of my way as well as they did when they heard the crutches coming. (laughs) 
Yeah, I did notice that I got I got more space when I was like obviously walking differently. I think if I had a mobility device, I would have to rig up like an Arduino or Raspberry Pi or something to make the Jetsons car noise as I. (laughs) (laughs) I think you bring up an interesting point, though, talking about the security scans that you, you were forced to go through is the tension between accessibility and security where like normally there's like just regular accessibility is, is tough on security. But then if you have a disability, those security issues can be even more onerous. Like if there's a captcha that doesn't have an audio option and you're low vision, like maybe you just can't log into the website. Um, and, and you're, you've got all that extra screening stuff that draws even more attention to you when you're in a chair or have some sort of device like that. I can imagine there's a lot of tension there. I feel like not being able to do a cap show would be particularly othering because it's literally like we're literally accusing you of being a robot and not a human. Right. Yeah, that makes sense to me. There are some folks working in sort of UX and security. So that's starting to be a thing. And I can't wait to hear more about what those people are going to say. Yeah, it should be. A, I mean, I think security could use a lot of UX love. So I really hope that a lot of people do that. <laughs> I've been seeing on Twitter, maybe over the past couple of years, people talking about accessibility being a critical feature in software design, as opposed to an afterthought where it's like, hey, we built our website, now let's make it accessible. By the way, we're launching tomorrow. Yeah. It's funny how much buildings are like that, too. You know, there's the giant statement staircase in front, and then there's usually several statement staircases inside. Um, I know at least John was at RubyConf. You saw all the little tiny stairs everywhere. And then you look for how to get there on wheels. And how to get there on wheels is in the back around a corner, not signed, and maybe not maintained. Often a problem with wheelchair lifts is that they're very poorly maintained and they get stuck. I wonder if it's an intersectionality issue also, because like one thing that I really appreciated about RubyConf this year is that they had a gender neutral bathroom and it wasn't even that far away from the conference like it sometimes is, but it was up a whole bunch of stairs. And so like, I think that there's perhaps you're not thinking about like, okay, we did something for like this per- like person A who is in this demographic and for person B who's in this other demographic, but like, what about someone that's in both? Yeah, I was really lucky at RubyConf. I think that some of you know Jennifer too, um, who's a friend of mine. And I arrived actually a day late and missed a bunch of really good talks that I'm going to have to go back and watch on video. But she looked at all the stairs and was like, Courtney's not going to have a good time. I need to go use my building exploration skills to try to figure out where all the elevators are, which she did. I was very grateful. Uh, but at one point she was like, the speaker's lounge is up there and I don't know where the elevator is to get there. And I was like, I have suddenly decided I do not care that much. And I never went to the speaker's lounge. So one of the things that you mentioned early on in, in your superpower talk was how you know your superpower came out of your troubled childhood. And that applies to me as well. And I think for a lot of us, it probably does. Like the, those coping skills that we develop in, in whatever crap we had to go through to get to where we are, are the things that can really bring value to other people and fulfill us, let's say. And so I'm wondering if you want to talk about that a little bit. Yeah, I have been sort of mulling over what you said a little bit ago about not wanting people to feel intimidated by what you do and that you personally, John, are not sure where that came from for you. Um, I know that for me, that came from a place of being a kid who was deliberately isolated from a lot of culture and a lot of people. The sort of black humor version of this is that if living off the grid and homeschooling had been a thing when I was growing up, that's what my parents would have done. And it meant that a lot of people related to me as if I was this sort of very strange, intimidating, but also annoying kind of alien, like a space alien. I used to use this sort of standard joke that people say, oh, you know, I was raised by wolves. I don't know how to use, I don't know which fork to use or whatever, right? Like, um, and I think that's definitely a thing, right? That's definitely, I don't want to belittle that experience because I was very lucky in not having the particular fork experience because I literally got training in it in high school. But I said, you know, raised by wolves at one point to a friend. And she said, no, you were raised by cartoon villains. You were raised by the person 
in, you know, Disney's Hunchback, who's singing to the Hunchback, no one loves you but me. No one can be trusted but me. Only rely on me. And I really didn't want that, right? I really didn't want to be that distant from everyone else. And we were just talking about othering. And yeah, that's a different kind. It was a, a social and cultural othering that I really worked hard to try to make less prominent for me. Do you think that's part of what attracted you to a career in tech? The career in tech was actually a complete accident. I dropped out of school in 1999 in Cambridge, Massachusetts. And that was a time when Akamai was hiring people off the street to work in their new knocks. I was their first full-time knock worker. And that's how I wound up in computers. My original goal had been geneticist. And at this point, you know, at the age of 39, I am pleased that I didn't do that because at this age, if I were a geneticist, I would just be probably starting to be able to do my own research instead of doing research for other people, right? So there's a lot of cool things I've been able to do in my life that I would just be getting started to the cool, self-directed part of that life. The othering is definitely part of the feeling of being other, the, the feeling of wanting to reduce that is definitely part of what made me really effective in tech support. Talking to customers who were bewildered, upset, confused, and usually hurt, right? A lot of customers who are in a place where they don't understand what's going on, at the bottom of that is that they feel like they can't get things done and like they're unwelcome and they don't know where to go for help. And being able to make that better can be really rewarding. But also, I spent six years in tech support, and I might be done with that as a career now. Yeah, that experience of like being bewildered and left out uh, reminds me of actually something that I saw on Twitter just this morning. Where uh, So it happens that yesterday, as we record this, Rudy Giuliani tweeted something, and he, uh, he tweeted in such a way that he left out a space between the period and the beginning of the next sentence in a way that created a clickable link to a domain that was not registered. And somebody went and registered that domain with a message about Trump being a traitor to our country. <laughs> and then Giuliani like lost his shit about this and accused Twitter employees of allowing somebody to interject in his message because, you know, they were all anti-Trump bigots or something, which, you know, on the one hand is laughable but on you know from another perspective like this is somebody who like generationally and fundamentally like does not get like some basics about how the internet works yet they were tapped as a potential candidate for a cybersecurity advisor <laughs> i saw about this too and it's like it's super interesting to me because it's like the same joke as screenshots of like someone's grandma who like accidentally posted their google search to facebook as like a status update, which except that it's like important people in the government and it makes me like hurt in my soul. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But, but that was a failure of communication, right? Because Giuliani has no idea of how that happened. And I wonder if anyone has tried to explain it to him in terms that he could actually understand. Yeah. And so like, if I take my own personal politics out of it, which is hard in this case because I feel very strongly about these people. But if I take them out of it, what I can see is an old person who made a mistake and feels – I don't know how they feel about it, but they're acting out in a way that you know suggests that maybe they don't really know what's going on and feel really defensive. I always have this super strong urge to look them up and be like, hey, I can make this make sense for you. I wonder what there is to say, too, though, about like, I definitely understand your point about someone just feeling so much like they don't understand something that they can't relate to it. But I also wonder, like, how much there is to say about making a mistake and then being like genuinely reflective about it rather than like just being defensive about it. Yeah, that's something that I talk about a lot in my talks on retrospectives and, you know, when holding them with coworkers, that sort of thing. Incident retrospectives are one of the things that I worked on standardizing at Heroku. And if I'm looking someone up and saying, hey, I can make this make sense for you, it does also take work on their part, right, to be open to that, to take it in, to sort of sit with it, like you were saying, in reflection, instead of letting their defensiveness sort of run them. 
that's an emotional intelligence, emotional labor kind of skill too. Yeah. Receiving feedback, especially negative feedback is, I mean, it takes a lot of like emotional muscles to do that well and not, not make it worse really. (laughs) Yeah. And luckily in my work at Herku with retrospectives, uh, I feel like I keep name dropping the company a lot. Sorry. Luckily, we don't have a lot of problems with defensiveness in most of our retrospectives. Most of the folks that we have now are very committed to the idea of retrospectives. The interesting sort of complementary problem that we do have is that sometimes people blame themselves, which is not something you want in a blameless retrospective either. Definitely experienced that at my current job. I've been there for about a year and a half now. And uh, I brought system down exactly once and everyone's like oh it's no big deal it happens to everybody and i'm like yeah but not me it doesn't happen to me i wrote up the postmortem document and uh when i laid out the simple mistake that i had made that caused that outage i was like i'm such an idiot how could i possibly do that i should know better than that and we had the uh, we had the postmortem, which I appreciate you calling a retrospective as opposed to a postmortem. Um, I'm sure that's deliberate. And uh, no one put me on the defensive, but I put myself on the defensive. I think this comes right back to what we were talking about right at the beginning. I was thinking about this when we were talking about how it's not like one person's fault when something bad happens. And like we were discussing it in the context of like it's not you know, someone else did something and it's not just their fault, but it's also not just your fault because there's like, there should be a structure around you that also protects you from doing stuff like that too. Whose bright idea was it to give me production access to the database? You're right, Sam. We can just blame someone else. We can always just blame someone else. So John, (laughs) you said something uh, a minute ago about taking feedback requiring a lot of emotional muscle. And I also want to point out that this is not a skill that like once you acquire it, you you know, it's like most skills, you don't acquire it linearly and you don't acquire it in all contexts at once. Like for years I've I've got a lot of good training in how to take professional feedback well and without getting my ego involved in it. And I'm, you know, I got pretty good at it. And then, you know, in other contexts, you know, socially or personally, it's terrible. Like you say the slightest thing and I just get super defensive and clam up and I'm like not talking to you for a week. And so it it can be really hard not only to acquire the skill in the first place, but then to be able to port it to different contexts. So like if you're struggling with this, you're not the only one. It's going to be your fault. <laughs> I take responsibility. I found that one of the first times that I learned what you were saying about how to sit with your defensiveness and sort of not let it out. I learned that as part of spending a lot of time reading the angry feminist internet in, you know, the mid 2000s. And one thing that a lot of people were saying at that time, which it took me a long time to really understand, was if it's not about you, it's not about you. Don't make it about you. And what that means is that in terms of activism and in terms of describing oppressions or emergent properties of groups, you need to talk about generalities. You need to talk about tendencies. You need to talk about wider pressures. That doesn't mean that every person who could be described by what you're talking about is a member of that set, right? So using myself as an example, white women historically have not been good allies to women of color in intersectional struggles around feminism and racism. That means that I need to sit with my complicity probably unconscious complicity in that. But it doesn't mean that if a black woman calls out a bunch of white women for doing a particular thing that I've never done, it doesn't mean that she's talking about me. And critically, it does not mean I need to respond in any way. It means that I need to and notice this, acknowledge it, try not to be like that myself, You know, learn from an example that's being called out in front of me. This is a free training opportunity. I, I love those. And not say anything back. This is something that the hashtag not all men or yes all men talks about a lot, right? Where if you haven't done it, don't tell us. Just keep not doing it. Right. Because the first response is, well, I, I'm not like that. Or 
we're not all like that. And then once you get over that, um, something that I have that I still sometimes struggle with is like that second level response of like, oh, yeah, I see you. I see that. Like you want to make a, a joke or something to show that you understand it, to show solidarity. But it often comes across as like, oh, I want my ally cookie for getting it, for being woke. I was uh, thinking a little bit about the defensiveness remark and how it's our natural instinct to be defensive if we recognize we've done something wrong. But I think the flip side of that is how difficult it is to show vulnerability. Admitting that you did something wrong requires a certain level of vulnerability that I think is really hard for some people to wrap their heads around. And it can be especially hard. You know, we've probably, it's probably true that everyone in the world has been bullied at one time or another. So we've probably all had some basic experience of like injustice. But depending on your personal experiences, you may have had a lot of experience with injustice. And then it's very difficult to be vulnerable and know that the response to your vulnerability might be additionally injurious to you. I definitely experienced that with the uh, harassment I get for being a visible, vocal person trying to make a difference in the world. I had an experience recently. I was at an engineering summit at my company, and there was a young woman of color who approached me about the behavior of a white woman at one of our company events and how it made her feel really uncomfortable. And she came to me, and the first thing I did was like, I'm going to listen. And then after I listened, and I was like, I hear you, and your feelings are valid. Do you want me to help? Do you want me to go talk to her? So that was a really good conversation, and I felt good about this person like coming to me with that vulnerability. We ended up going outside to have a cigarette. I made a passing remark about being bipolar, and she lit up. She because she also struggles with bipolar disorder, and it reminded me that there's value in me being vulnerable, even though it opens me up to additional harassment and having to read people like dissecting my mental health publicly. But being vulnerable actually helps people. Being vulnerable, other people can see themselves reflected in your experience, and it requires strength to do that, but that can be life-changing for people. Yeah, totally. I think there's also a perception about, I, I like what you said about like everyone has been maybe bullied, but like some people have more experience with injustice because I think that the more experience people have with injustice, the harder it is to talk about because I think there's this perception that like, you just complain about everything or like it can't possibly be as bad as you're saying that it is or like this perception of like being dramatic or exaggerating or making stuff up that people get like people who haven't experienced it like it feels attention-y to them and I guess I'm not sure where I'm going with this but how about believe people when they tell you something yeah I think that's a good place to start I wonder how we can combat that feeling in general, because I think like if everyone believed every when you, you told them something, maybe it would be better. But I do think, as you're saying earlier, that a lot of it is internal, like even people that have always believed me when I've told them stuff, I have this fear of coming off as complaining, too. And so I think it's like a bigger attitude thing than even that, potentially. Something I was thinking about as you were saying that is that. There's a way in which humans, everyone has sort of a, a sense of what's possible, what's real, and it's informed by their experiences. And people who have a lot of privilege and maybe have only experienced a little bit of bullying and have not experienced greater kinds of abuse or oppression flatten what they hear into what they themselves have experienced because it's difficult to perceive things that you haven't had happen to you. And so if someone says something to me that's very outside my personal experience, it has to be a deliberate effort on my part to set aside what I know to be possible for me in the world and think about what they've just told me in their context. And again, name-checking one of my favorite people, Suzette Hayden-Elgin, um, in one of her early books, she talks about 
of what she calls Miller's Law. And it's coined by um, George Armitage Miller. I use this in almost all my talks, too. And the law is the only way to understand something that someone else has said to you is that seems completely ludicrous on its face is to believe that it must be true and then try to figure out what it must be true of. That really speaks to part of my experience when I was passing and trying to live as a as a guy. I didn't experience a whole lot of active or visible harassment or, or anything along those lines. And it wasn't until I changed it. So I had this abstract notion that, yes, sexism is bad and it, it, it must be horrible to experience. And actually being in the position where I started to experience sexism and started to experience transphobia in a, in a more blatant way was really transformative because I didn't realize, like you said, that those things were possible. I didn't realize that those experiences, I knew they were real, but they were always abstract. I think that potentially experiencing harassment in like one kind of lane, I guess, may, may pe- make people more empathetic of of other people. Like I can't know, I can't know what it is it's like to be black and get be experience racism. But like, I do know that people are shitty. And so I think maybe I have like a better than someone who like is very privileged in all lanes, like a better idea of like, I'm sorry that this happened to you. I've never experienced that. But like, I know that people are shitty and I totally believe that they would be that shitty to you. And I'm sorry. This sort of negative example that I think of about this a lot is the big A atheists, the sort of movement atheists, which tend to be a lot of white men whose only experience of any kind of institutionalized, I'm not even going to say oppression, uh, disadvantage, is being atheist. And it is the worst injustice, if you read the right, the absolute worst, there's no worse injustice than that perpetrated upon the atheists by the villagers. I have a story about this. I'm calling out my dad. My dad is a very good ally to me, but I'm calling him out on this one because, like, we had this conversation several years ago where he was like, you can't understand what it's like to be around a lot of people and they're all Christian except you. And I was like, really? I can't understand that? And he was like, oh, no. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but it was like a, it was a good conversation. I was actually mad about it at the time, but it was a good conversation because I think I was actually able to get through to him. Be like, "Wow, what must it be like to be the only person in a group of people that's different? I would never understand." And like, I think that maybe I don't know. Maybe snarkiness is a response because it kind of worked for him. But I'm sure that there are other people that it wouldn't work for that aren't as good allies. But I've experienced what you're describing. <laughs> My dad listens to this podcast, and I feel a little bad, but not that bad. Your dad listens to your podcast? Uh, yeah. Wow. That's great. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know if I wish that my dad listened to this podcast or not. I don't think I've ever... Maybe I've called him out a couple of times for his politics. I don't know. But, yeah, luckily my dad doesn't follow me on Twitter. He's not on Twitter. And I self-censor the hell out of myself on Facebook. It's all like, look, pictures of me in Paris. <laughs> and not, look, the administration wants to kill me. So one of the things I was thinking about earlier when uh, we were talking about um, the difficulty of taking feedback uh, constructively, uh, it's definitely something I'm still working on. There's a, a lot of headroom <laughs> for me to do there. but um, <clears throat> And this happened last week. I uh, got some very, very mild negative feedback from a superior about something that could have gone better or something that should have been could have been thought through more thoroughly before it was executed. And in the moment, you know, I took the feedback well, but then I, I but then there was this sort of lingering emotional impact like for a day or two after it. Like like and I knew this was going to happen. Thankfully, I had enough experience with this that I knew it was going to happen, but like my my emotions kept saying, "Well, maybe this isn't the company for you." You know, things aren't going that great. So maybe spend a little time like thinking about other places you could go. And like, I think if I didn't, hadn't known that that was going to be a response I had, I, I might have started, you know, polishing up my resume or, or reaching out to people. But thankfully, I knew enough about my own response that I could say, no, 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 this is, this is just going to be a day or two. I'll, I'll process through it. It'll be fine. But I find that like that own, that 
knowledge of my own emotional response to a certain situation was really helpful there and not overreacting or not doing anything unconstructive, like even in my own life, not necessarily even in the work situation. How do we teach that? So one of the things that I do is try to try to keep being familiar with my own emotional responses. And one of the things I recommend is doing like an emotional retro at the end of every week where you look back and say, oh, Tuesday I was a little sad. Wednesday I was totally angry. Friday I was really excited. And just feeling those feelings. Like, because you probably don't do it in the moment because it's really hard to do in the moment. Uh, and maybe you can go back for just a couple of days and, and like work through the feeling and sort of understand it a little better. And then once you've done that, you get that sort of everyday experience with what the ebb and flows feel like, which makes it then easier when bigger things happen for you to say, oh, this is suddenly a pattern I'm noticing. And every time X happens, I respond with Y. And maybe I could not do that this time. I feel like there are a lot of people blogging about activism and how to deal with your own bias that talk about how to manage those feelings in yourself. And that the first thing to try to learn is to sit with your own defensiveness, which it sounds like that's exactly what you did, John. And it was definitely like learning to do that was transformative for me. I feel like I figured out a lot of other ways to handle situations like that, that after I figured out how to sit with my own defensiveness, the rest of it almost came naturally. But the other thing I was thinking about with the sort of knowing your own responses to these kinds of situations and how sometimes we're surprised by the outsized responses of our brains. Uh, there's a single paragraph in the book, Trauma and Recovery, that I have been thinking about a lot lately. Uh, so the context of this paragraph is that the author doesn't draw a distinction between people who experience something like being a political prisoner or prisoner of war and someone who is in an abusive romantic relationship or an abusive family, that she finds that the experiences and the outcomes are so similar that it is fundamentally the same kind of experience. Um, so this is in the chapter on captivity. She says, prolonged captivity disrupts all human relationships and amplifies the dialectic of trauma. The survivor oscillates between intense attachments and terrified withdrawal. She approaches all relationships as though questions of life and death are at stake. She may cling desperately to a person whom she perceives as a rescuer, flee suddenly from a person she suspects to be a perpetrator or accomplice, show great loyalty and devotion to a person she perceives as an ally, and heap wrath and scorn on a person who appears to be a complacent bystander. The roles she assigns to others may change suddenly as the result of small lapses or disappointments, for no internal representation of another person is any longer secure. Once again, there is no room for mistakes. Over time, as most people fail the survivor's exacting tests of trustworthiness, she tends to withdraw from relationships. The isolation of the survivor thus persists even after she is free. That last sentence gives me a feeling of sort of momentous silence, like a rock dropped in a well. I'm going to go get that book. <laughs> yeah, it's an amazing book. Uh, I read that one chapter, having opened to it by accident, and put the book down and have been thinking about it for the last nine months. But that's what I think about when we talk about these sort of surprising responses by our brains. You know, a small thing that didn't go how we expected, a small piece of negative feedback, a setback, and suddenly our brains are like, oh God, must run away because things are really, really, really bad. And you sort of have to talk your own brain down from that edge. Brains are so mean. Yeah. Yeah. I think what you talked about sitting with a feeling is, is I think one of those keys, because I think most of us, certainly me, like the first reaction to a feeling is get away, get away, get away. <laughs> and, and that leads to all sorts of behaviors that aren't necessarily constructive. But when you can stop that, like avoidance behavior and sit and just say, okay, this is the feeling. This is what it is. I'm just going to sit here and, and, and we'll keep going, but I don't have to do anything about it suddenly your options open up. So maybe the feeling just evaporates and it, it goes away and the situation passes. You know, sometimes you realize that there is a thing to do, but you can spend your time thinking through what that is going to be. I've definitely experienced that too. Like the idea of, I have a feeling and my logic side is like, this feeling is dumb and doesn't make sense. And like, therefore I shouldn't be having it and I'm going to stop having it. And this idea... 
Yeah, exactly. And this idea of like, well, this feeling doesn't totally make sense to me, but I'm obviously having it. So I just have to deal with that is like, kind of, I don't know, like freeing in a way, in some ways. Yeah, I mean, you're not always fleeing. Like allowing yourself to be like, even though I don't think I should be doing this, I'm accepting the fact that this is reality and this is what's actually happening. Yeah, I've been trying to be a little bit more consistent about actually meditating regularly these days. And I I mean, like for one to three minutes at a stretch, because that's what I can manage right now. But uh, I had this experience last week of sitting down and, you know, I, I woke up early that morning and I was like super tired and it was just like, uh, got to get up, got to take a shower, get dressed, do all the things, get ready for work. And then when I sat down at my computer, my meditate for one minute alarm went off. And so I stopped and I actually sat down and, and checked in with myself. And like within two seconds, I, I actually noticed again, like just how painful my body felt. And it was like, wow, that sucks. And then... My next thought was, so this is a thing that's happening and that I had sort of been ignoring. Um, but now that I'm here and I notice it, what can I do differently? You know, what can I change? How can I give myself space to take care of myself knowing that this is now happening? Um, and just, you know, stopping and, and taking the time to sit with something and check in gives you that power to maybe, maybe choose how you respond. I think naming it has a lot of power too. I remember there was a situation earlier this year. I've been having a really rough time and I was talking to my therapist and I was like, I don't know what's wrong with me. It feels like all the color has been drained out of life. And I just, all the things that used to give me pleasure, none of it gives me pleasure anymore. She's like, Coraline, you're having a depressive episode. And I was like, Oh, Oh yeah. That's something that happens to me. Just naming it allowed me to introduce a little bit of distance between myself and the way I was feeling. I felt so stupid for not having recognized that that was happening, but it was so overwhelming. I couldn't take a step back from it. But naming it allowed me to take a step back and was really vital in helping me recover from that episode. I like that you both use the word power in your descriptions of it. Yeah, well, that to me is one of the worst things about my own experiences with depression is that for me, it's not that I feel bad all the time, although when I do, that really, really sucks. For me, the most insidious part of my depression is all those times when I just don't feel anything. And my depression is telling me it's always been this way and will always be this way. If I can stop and like actually actively name it to my, you know, name my depression, then I can remember that it does that to me and realize, oh, it hasn't always been this way. And I can go look for evidence again, you know, that contradicts that that story. But I have to be able to notice it. All of this reminds me is kind of like an emotional incident response, right? Yeah, there's a training I'm, I'm actually trying to find a time slot for called Mental Health First Aid is they do training for police officers as well as just re regular citizens on like how to deal with someone who is having a mental health crisis um, so that you do not make it worse and <laughs> so that they can be uh, taken care of properly. And I'm particularly glad that they're giving this training to law enforcement officers because usually those situations go so poorly. Um, but it's some, a training I want to get myself just because I would love to be able to help out better in those situations. I think an important part of that, too, is it's not just necessary when there's a crisis. I think a lot of the way that we as a society deal with mental health issues is we wait until it's life-threatening, and then we attempt an intervention, and we don't get the, the constant level of support or the constant checking in or the constant care for the things we're struggling with. Because if you can stand up sometimes, you must not really need that wheelchair. That feels like a great way to end the episode, Sam. That was fucking brilliant. Yeah. Quality callback. Thank you. So at the end of the episode, we like to do reflections where we talk about the things that we're going to take away from this episode or the things that have made us think more deeply about a certain thing. And uh, I think my reflection is just about how the history of a trauma, like trauma, it doesn't stay in the past. Trauma is a continuous effect on our life. And, it, you know, it's something that, that those of us who've experienced it are, are dealing with at all times. But it's not all negative because it, it can be a thing that will teach us 
how to deal with other people who have had the same traumas or similar traumas. It can teach us like how to understand those people and their experiences and give us new skills that we had to develop while going through it that are maybe now useful to us in the future. And so, you know, while while trauma is a terrible thing and I hope that no one ever goes through any of it, you know, there are some gems in that pile of manure that it is. I think for me, and it's really interesting how we started talking about Courtney, your professional career and how quickly that sort of shifted into this like difficult but important emotional space. And uh, I like the idea, I said it offhand as a, as a joke at the end here, but I want to think about therapy and frame that as a blameless retrospective. I think that's kind of what I do, except for the blameless part. So I want to take some of the lessons I learned from my day job in dealing with retrospectives or postmortems, as we call them, and uh, just figure out how I can apply that to my own mental health. So thank you for that. Damn it, Coraline, you stole my reflection. Oh, I'm sorry. I was actually going to say I was going to take something from uh, tech and apply it to therapy, which is that, uh, you know, you actually called out earlier how, uh, Courtney, you uh, refer to quote unquote postmortems as retrospectives. And um, that sort of stuck with me. And it, uh, I was realizing actually that what I could do is use this as an excuse to actually buy the book on agile retrospectives uh, and go through it specifically reading into it the context of you know therapeutic change and wondering and specifically looking through there to see if there are any tricks that I can borrow from tech and use them so that I can apply those skills that I have in a professional context to my own personal development. Oh, I'm so going to do that too. You can do a book club episode about it. Yeah. It's a good idea. So much brilliance on display today. I bet we could get Diana on for that. That would be awesome, honestly. For my reflection, I'm going to throw back a little bit earlier in the show. The story that I keep thinking about is Courtney's story from earlier in the show about her friend Jennifer going to RubyConf and like scouting out like the stare situation and everything for her. Because I think that like my first response, my, like I went through this kind of like series of thoughts in my head while the story was happening. And my first thought was like, Oh, what a good friend. And then my second thought was like, well, she shouldn't have to do that because this is bullshit. But then my third, like it circled back around and I was like, Oh, but like it is bullshit. And like how important it is to have such a good friend. <laughs> and I think that, um, that's like, I guess my reflection is that that's kind of like an action item for me. Like I, try to I, I was actually on like the organizing team for RubyConf and like it's been really rewarding for me to try to make changes in actual like architecture of how things are run and I think that that's really important but sometimes it's like not as possible as you'd like it to be or you push for things and they still don't happen so I think it's like a really cool and good action item to be like well even if you're not changing things on this like more like higher level you can still be helping people on like this kind of more direct level and sometimes it's easy to forget that when you're so busy trying to like change things all over the world that like you can still be like a good friend and do something good for your for your individual friend several of you said like wanted to start thinking about technology tricks in therapy and I'm thinking about like maybe I should go try and learn something about group therapy and see how that informs how I handle retrospectives. I love that idea. But there's a gold mine in there. Well, thank you. As always, this has been a really interesting conversation that did not go where I thought it was going to go. And that was wonderful. Um, listeners, we'll be back at you soon. Check out this new podcast called The Local Maximum. It's hosted by Max Sklar, who is a machine learning engineer at Foursquare. He covers a lot of fascinating topics, AI, building better products, and the latest technology news from his unique perspective. Max interviews a wide diversity of guests, including engineers, entrepreneurs, and creators of all types. You can see their bios at localmaxradio.com and subscribe to The Local Maximum podcast wherever you listen. <laughs>